Thank you, dear brother. This has been delightful fellowship, and it is great to see this place just full. Let's have that all the time. <laughs> and it feels like home to me. You old-timers know that Genoa City brings many, many happy memories to my mind. I remember when we were a little class way back there in the storefront and later in the Olson home, and I got back to the Olson Hotel again today. You see, I went to the doctor about two months ago. I said, Doc, I'm 72 years old, and they tell me that if you're past 60, you ought to get a second flu shot if the, the, another dose of this virus is going around. He said, yeah, I think you should. So he gave me a shot, and he shot it into me. I mean, I, I've had it ever since I went to see the doctor. So I didn't feel just too well. But my dear old friend Dick Olson took me home with him so I could get a pan backward. And that uh, was real nice. <laughs> if you don't know how to spell pan backward, what are you going to do with Matsar Sulenrock? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was nice, and uh, it's good to be with you again. And I want to bring a message about evangelism, the last one of this brief series. Before I do, I should confess that in my heart there's a little tinge of jealousy, brother. You live in Chicago, 20 minutes away from the airport, uh, airfield, and here those 747s and DC-10s and everything go over. You don't know how often I say, oh, hush up. <laughs> I'm trying to talk to my wife and I can't get the words out. She can't hear me. And uh, so I'm a little jealous. I'll confess it. But there's a good side to me, too, a real nice side. And that is, I want to I freely forgive this afternoon uh, Pastor Paul Sadler, Pastor Dennis Kazonis, Pastor Richard Jordan, and Pastor Floyd Baker for stealing so much of my thunder and saying so many things that I was going to say. But I'll do the best I can, and I trust the Lord will give us a happy time with his word. Shall we turn to the Lord in prayer? Our great God and our wonderful, loving, faithful, understanding, gracious, uh, heavenly Father, we come to thee now and we pray that thou wilt illumine our minds and our hearts, open our hearts to receive thy truth, we pray, and grant that as we uh, study this, uh, this exhortation from God's Word, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit may apply it to our hearts and make different people out of us. And dear Lord, should there be any here who are still unsaved, strangers to thy grace, strangers to thee and thy beloved Son, oh, may they believe the Evangel, the Gospel, the good news this afternoon that Christ died for our sins. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray, and for his glory and for their sakes. Amen. Now, will you turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 4. And I have been asked to speak on the third clause of the fifth verse. 2 Timothy 4, 5. But watch thou in all things. Uh, endure afflictions, 
do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Now the third clause is, do the work of an evangelist. Before I say anything else, I want to get something as make, it's been said, but I want to make it just as crystal, ABC, baby clear as I can so that nobody will forget. When I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about the evangel. When I talk about an evangelist, I talk about one who's proclaiming the gospel. Gospel and evangel, uh, evangel both mean good news. And here he says to preacher Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. But as I read this first, a question came to me really not that came from my own heart, but that I felt must come from many hearts as I read it. Do the work of an evangelist. It seems to me we're living in a day when we're surrounded by evangelists. You know I could, I could name a list of at least half a dozen to a dozen who have such great audiences they could speak face to face to 10,000 crowds of 10,000 and upwards, some of them in the tens of thousands. And they're getting millions of listeners by radio and TV, evangelists. They're preaching Christ. And many of them even are saying, Christ died for you. And the great majority, I think we who study the word a little, and read the writings and hear the sermons of pastors today, the general run of fundamentalist and evangelical pastors are basically evangelists. They use, oh, a nice, uh, a nice concert or a, a this or that or the other thing to get the people in, and then they uh, tell them uh, perhaps some illustrations and so on, a few verses from the Word of God, and they try to get them forward to make decisions. And, well, basically that's evangelism. It's a very poor brand, we'll see in a minute. But the fact is that any poor soul that wants to be saved can hear ten broadcasts on this one day in which they will hear how to be saved, to trust in Christ as their Savior. They hear a lot of other things to mix them up, but there is a great deal of evangelism. And the question is, is this exhortation really so urgent now? Uh, do the work of an evangelist? I say yes, more than ever, more than ever. Now, first of all, we'd have to ask, when they're preaching the gospel, what gospel are they preaching? Do they themselves know? Do they have a distinctive message that they are preaching the gospel, the good news about, you know, gospel only means good news. And as I wrote in our book, Things That Differ, when a man comes to me and says, did you hear the good news? What should be my first question? What good news? You can't just talk about the gospel, the gospel, they call it the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the gospel of salvation, but there is nothing specific about it. And in the great, vast majority of cases, my dear friends, I don't mean to be unkind or, or certainly unkindly critical, but it must be said, the great mass of gospel messages today uh, proclaim a mongrel gospel. You can't tell, they talk about the kingdom and getting into the kingdom and how we belong to the family of God and uh, so on, all in the most general terms 
and they don't seem to really know what they are preaching. That's sad to say, but it's a fact. A man came to me one time, and he, he had been in a service in which I had preached, and he hurried out of the service and got to me just as I was getting into the car, and I could see he was sort of worked up. I said, come on, sit in the car. You want to ask me something? Yes, I do. He said, is it, is it more important to know all these details and get them straight than it is to preach the gospel? I said, what gospel do you mean? What gospel are you speaking of? He said, well, the gospel is the gospel. There's only one gospel. Well, I said, could you, you have a few minutes? Let's turn to Luke in the ninth chapter. And uh, the, let's see here, the ninth chapter and the, the sixth verse, I believe, nine, six. And here it says, they departed uh, and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. I said, what did they preach? He said, well, the gospel, that's what it says. I said, well, what is the gospel? Is it Christ died for our sins? I said, how could they preach that? Christ hadn't died yet. <laughs> not only that, not only that, they didn't preach that Christ would die for their sins. And I asked them to turn, now this may be old stuff to some of you, but it's mighty new to some of you too. Let's look at the 18th chapter of Luke. Now these same men have been working with the Lord Jesus for at least two years. Two years. And look what it says. In Matthew it says, he began to tell them. And this is the first time. He took the, ver the 31st verse of Luke 18. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets that have been prophesied concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death and the third day he shall rise again. And of course, they understood all of these things and this was perfectly clear to them. No, it doesn't say that. It says they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things that were spoken. They had been apostles of Christ. They had been preaching the gospel now, if you're going to just say the gospel. They had been preaching it for more than two years and didn't even know that Christ would die. And this is only one of two passages in which it says three times in one verse they didn't even begin to understand. You remember, don't you? I don't have to go to look for particular verses. You know how that when the Lord began to tell him how he must suffer and die, Peter rebuked him. He said, Lord, don't say that. You're not going to die. And the Lord had to rebuke Peter. Now, how could they have been preaching the gospel which we preach? I must say to the man's credit, the man that asked me, when we were through, he said, boy, I have been kind of confused, haven't I? <laughs> yes, he had been. Another pastor said to me, I preach Jesus. I leave doctrine to the theologians. Oh, too bad. Any such man uh, calling himself as an evangelist will stand condemned, ashamed, and unapproved at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, now look here, please, at the text we're discussing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, 
that very verse shows that there's going to be trouble over it. Let's look here how this is found in a, doct- in a, in a context of doctrine. Look at verse, uh, verse 2. Preach the word, be on your toes, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and, what's that word? Doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Verse 4, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I can imagine Timothy saying, that makes me mad. I'm going to show them that I'm right. Paul says, all right, preach what I told you to preach, but be sure to do the work of an evangelist. I'm glad that several of our men in these just wonderful meetings have emphasized the fact that our message is basically good news. Let's keep it that, beloved. Let's make sure that our theme is the glad news, the good news of the grace of God that was first committed to Paul and now to us. I know that many evangelists today uh, who really don't, can't spend much time studying the Bible They're so busy organizing and advertising and spend big money, uh, sometimes into the millions of dollars doing it for one campaign. They they do it well. They do it big. Uh, They get all the professionals in on it so that it's done right. They get results. People come forward in droves. My friend, if they bypass what God says in his word about evangelism and they don't study they don't study and teach they're going to stand ashamed before the judgment seat of Christ but more than that this is not only found in a context of doctrine it's found also in a context of dispensational emphasis Look, please, at chapter 1. Now, this is a very small letter, a very small book, by one author to one person. So you've got to say this is in context. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. That idea, the form of sound words, means the exact words, the very words. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which is committed unto thee. Now here I must stop. This is a grand translation, but I've got to tell you a little about it. Do you know what that word, thing which is committed unto thee, You know what that clause is in the original? One word. One word. Deposit. Now a deposit, and that's what the translators bring out. You see, they they didn't, they were greatly, wonderfully led because centuries of time came in between when a deposit might not be spoken of so freely as it is now. But to us it's a deposit. What's a deposit? I put a deposit in the bank. What do I do? I commit that to their trust, right? That which is committed to thy trust. And that word good, well, 
You can use good in many ways. Good is one of those words that can mean many things. I may have a good boy, and I may give him a good spanking. I may have a good diamond. That's three different ways already. Here it has the idea of good in the sense that it's precious. This is a precious deposit that God has committed to our trust here to Timothy's trust. And he says, what is that deposit? The form of sound words which you've heard of me. Hold on to it. Hold it fast. My dear friend, can the most ardent evangelist who bypasses 2 Timothy 2.15? I didn't give you, I have a whole list of verses. The time is going, so save me the trouble of quoting them all to you. But it's all dispensation on certainly the second chapter in verses uh, 6 and 7. Consider, remember, make God give you understanding. See, consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember. What does remember mean? Oh, you don't know. I can't believe that. What does remember mean? That's right. Don't forget it. Don't you forget that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, that's who had been talked of, discussed all through prophecy. That's the one who had been proclaimed by Peter at Pentecost. But don't forget, Paul said, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And you know, uh, just as Paul preached the cross in a very different way than Peter had preached it, so he preached the resurrection in a different way than Peter had preached it. Peter said, you killed him, but the one that was, you killed has been raised to sit on the throne of David. And he warned them that the one whom they had crucified was alive again. That was a warning. That in itself was not good news. But what did Paul say? Oh, do I have to start? He was raised for our justification. We're raised with him and made to sit in heavenly places and so on. Oh, how different. Remember, he says, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And in the 15th verse, study to show thyself approved unto God. How many there are among the clergy today and among Sunday school teachers and Christian workers who are selfish. They're not studying, and that word doesn't mean to study the Bible necessarily. It means agonized to be approved unto God, and then it tells you how. But many, many, many men of God are not so worried about being approved unto God as they are being approved unto men. They want people to like them. And now, oh, my Christian friend, let's ask God for tact and grace and understanding for their sakes, but not for our own. Let's not always be asking ourselves, well, what will they do? What will they say? What will they, how will they feel about me? I think that has brought so much compromise and dead preaching among the, uh, the clergy who know Christ is their Savior and ought to be able to do better. I think it's a snare of the devil, a fear of man. Here he says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. And I tell you, my friend, any evangelist that bypasses these
strong dispensational exhortation and, uh, and reverts or turns back to the humanistic modern evangelism of our day is a poor thing, a poor thing indeed. Now, that verse is very clear. Second Timothy could hardly be clearer. There must be distinctions in the word of God or he wouldn't say study to please God by finding them and recognizing them, would he? But that's exactly what he does say. And my friend, we cannot be true evangelists. And let me interrupt myself again here. He doesn't say to the pastor, uh, evangelize a little once in a while. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Any preacher should be an evangelist as well. Now we're going to see that there are fortes in our ministries and uh, uh, God-given uh, uh, abilities and gifts. But that doesn't change the fact that he says, be an evangelist, do the work of an evangelist. And this is found not only in a context of doctrine, but in a context of strong dispensational exhortation. A man who is an evangelist today ought certainly to know the difference between the gospel and the, of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God. How many do listen to and it will be saddening, a sad experience to hear how they don't think the gospel is the gospel, that's all. And they have it all confused. Certainly they ought to know and help their people to understand the difference, and it is a very dramatic and, and blessed difference. Peter at Pentecost, when they said, what shall we do? Did Peter say, oh, Christ died for you, just believe it and he turned? No, he did not. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. What did Paul say later in, for example, Romans 3, 26? He says, we declare at this time, I say, he had just said, but now a few verses ago, we declare, I say at this time, Christ's righteousness for the remission of sins. What a difference between repentance and baptism for the remission of sins and the righteousness of Christ for the remission of sins. That would make a big difference just knowing and preaching that in evangelism, wouldn't it? They ought to see the difference between the, the so-called Great Commission, the Great Commission given to the eleven, where he says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And what Paul says in that same Romans 3.26, uh, we declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, that's even of past generations, that God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth and is baptized. Oh, it doesn't say that though, does it? It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved in that old commission under which Peter and the twelve labored. But under Paul's commission, he says, God, Christ died and we have his righteousness that God might be just and at the same time the justifier of him 
that believeth in Jesus and all blessed period. <laughs> that's period right there. That's all. God can be just, and that's, that's why Paul is so proud of the gospel. I'm not ashamed, really, it's in a, in a positive. I stand unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Isn't that beautiful? And all through, when he offers salvation so freely and so wonderfully, uh, just for the believing, just for the receiving, he adds again and again. You'd be, you'd be thrilled as you go through Romans alone and see this, through the redemption that is in Christ. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Always he bases it on the wonderful finished work of Christ. That really wasn't understood. It wasn't understood what the cross had accomplished until humankind had passed it by for a while, until the cross was more and more in the past. And then, as Saul of Tarsus was leading the world and his nation in rebellion against God and his Christ, then God reached down and saved the chief of sinners and said, Now go tell them. Go show them yourself. I saved you. And that's what he does. And uh, he says, Go tell them about the grace by which man can be saved today just by grace through faith. Certainly they ought to see that there's a difference. And if they don't, it's going to confuse their hearers if they think at least a little bit the difference between the gospel of the kingdom, the preaching of the throne, and the preaching of the cross. What are the twelve preached, basically? The gospel of the kingdom. Even at Pentecost, Peter said, God raised him from the dead to sit on the throne of David. The promise is to you, and so on, you see. Ah, but they ought to see the difference between that and what Paul calls the preaching of the cross. That is, as good news, the word uh, preaching there, uh, again, is the idea of proclaiming as good news. Years ago, there was a man and his family that moved up into Alaska to evangelize the Eskimos there. And he tried to be friendly with them, but they were very cold. He... Uh, uh, rented a second floor room over a store and uh, he met with his family and tried to get a few others to meet with him but no results one day the chief of the natives in that city the chief of the Eskimos in that area quietly opened the door downstairs after they had gathered upstairs and he went in and he sat at the door to listen to what these people were talking about and he heard them sing there's power in the blood and so on oh he said this is terrible and he left the, the place and, 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 and stealthily went out again and he went and called the leaders of the town together he said these people are singing about blood that was terrible, he thought. Oh, if only they had known. We now can sing about the shed blood of Christ. Oh, the blood, the blood is all my plea. 
Hallelujah, it cleanseth me. And a hundred other songs we sing about the blood that was shed at Calvary. Certainly an evangelist ought to see that difference. And we certainly ought to see, if we want to be evangelists, the difference between the prophetic plan and what Paul calls my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. According to the prophetic plan, there at uh, Pentecost, everything was right for the prophesied judgment to fall. Peter said, this is it. This is what was spoken by the prophets. What was spoken by the prophets? God is going to pour out his spirit upon his own, and he's going to pour out judgment on his enemies. Another warning. That's what Peter preached at Pentecost. But oh, isn't it of vital interest and concern to those who want to hear the gospel? Isn't it most important to show them that when the world was doomed to judgment and the prophesied uh, lightning and thunder was about to be seen and heard, instead God took the chief of sinners, man whose hand was dripping with the blood of saints, who breathed out threatenings and slaughter against him, who verily thought he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who was exceedingly mad against the Christians and uh, uh, went even to distant cities to find them and bring them, drag them, it says, bound to Jerusalem, both men and women. And here this one is saved. And he's told, go out and tell them now, I saved you. You didn't do anything. I know he was baptized later, but you know he was saved before. That's the first, the first change in the water baptism picture in the, in the New Testament, in the, in the scriptures. You know he was saved on that road to Damascus. And right there he said, Lord, what shall I do? What wilt thou have me to do? Right there the Lord made him an apostle. Right that very day it says so. Now surely that should be most important to a world still doomed to judgment. Well, and they ought to know what is my gospel. When Paul three times speaks about my gospel, when many times in very phraseology he says, this is what I preached unto you, the gospel that you have heard of me and follow me, and so on. Surely they ought to be very interested. They ought to want to make sure to understand what my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery is. So I surely agree heartily with Brother Floyd Baker, who has just been decrying and deploring the sad state of evangelism today. It can't be the glad message. It can't be the message that we're so enthused about or certainly ought to be. It can't be that same message. Oh, they say Christ died for our sins. And sometimes, forgive me, but I, I have to agree with a man who went to church and says, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Christ died for your sins. That's the gospel. Well, my friend, if you don't show them the background and how this all took place, it could become boring, do you know that? It shouldn't, but it could, because it, they don't see how wonderful it is 
how 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 great a a, a a stroke of love and mercy and grace this was. What a surprise of grace when it looked like the end was in sight. And here God says, No, not yet, not yet. And he's waited now for nineteen hundred years. Now this brings me to the other side of the coin. I preached oh thirty minutes. The other side, 32 or 40 or 50. No, I won't do that. I, pr I promise if you won't watch, uh, look at your watch, I will. I don't mind so much when people look at their watches as the man said, what bothers me is when they do this. <laughs> but I won't be long now. There is, there may be a danger on the other side, and I think there was for a while, more than there is now, in the so-called grace movement, some are so zealous, I wonder if that's wrong to put it that way, but they're so zealous about rightly dividing the word of truth that they keep finding divisions and so on where there are none, <laughs> you see. They, they look for and seem to find divisions that are not there. And it seems that with all this snipping here, cutting off, cutting off there, the heart of the thing is gone. They don't seem to have the love and the desire and the, the concern for lost souls that ought to be there. And I want to say this about your pastor right now. And I can say that about other pastors right here now, too. There's one thing I hear about that dear man of God is that he not only rightly divides the word of truth, but he loves souls and seeks to get them one to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two should go together. But I'll tell you why some think they don't belong together. If you look with me, please, at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave, now it speaks about Christ going to heaven. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And I've read articles by men who have said this is entirely progressive, wholly progressive. First you had the apostles, and then you had prophets, and after that you had evangelists, and they cover the great bulk of this present dispensation. And now all we should have is pastors and teachers. You understand that's one category. Let me show you just quickly. He gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some, he doesn't say some pastors and some teachers, some pastors and teachers. A pastor should be a teacher. How can he feed the flock of God if he doesn't teach the word of God? So a pastor should be a teacher. Now, I don't believe that, that this is wholly progressive, not at all. On this basis, there would be no evangelists today. I don't believe that. I believe, rather, that this is separated into two parts. You go back to Acts 2, and you find both apostles and prophets, don't you? Remember, he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And the apostles were right there. So you have both apostles and prophets during that Pentecostal period. And uh, even that, that went on for some time. Even in one of Paul's later epistles, 
uh, uh, Ephesians 3, 5. He says, in other ages it was not made known, this mystery, and is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So now, at that time, there were also apostles and prophets. But as the two phase out, and of course, the I can't say the prophets lasted longer, but the two of them phased out, God began to bring in evangelists and pastors and teachers. But let not anyone think that the teacher, or that the evangelist should not be a teacher. Oh no, we've seen that. This is right in a doctrinal context. It's right here where he's speaking of people turning away their ears from the truth and so on, but you go on teaching sound doctrine and doing the work of an evangelist. And neither should the uh, teacher think that he shouldn't be an evangelist. We have this here now according to Ephesians 4, if that's uh, what God has had working for the church, the body of Christ. I believe they did have they did have apostles and prophets in the early part of the church, the body of Christ, and uh, uh, that those two went together, those two offices. Only the apostle, of course, had the greater authority, and he could decide on any teaching that some man said, "Thus saith the Lord, I've got this or that." You see, but as to the uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers. It's clear that there are fortes and there's uh, gifts that one had, not in the sense of a, uh, of a Pentecostal gifts or miraculous gifts, but uh, greater abilities, uh, that in which they were more gifted than others. Some were naturally evangelists. That's all right. Oh, but remember, you'll be a teaching evangelist. Don't be like the great majority of evangelists that we have today. That's why the church is in such a sad condition. Think of the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions that have come forward in evangelistic meetings. But the, everything's getting worse instead of better. The church is maybe fuller. Ah, but sad, sad is some of the preaching that is held, that is a uh, dispensed from the pulpit. We had a man at the Star of, at the uh, Berean Bible Society some years ago. Uh, you folks who are old North Shore people will remember the Jewish photographer down the street that took some of O'Hare's best pictures. Well, he moved out west a little later, and we had him for some pictures at Berean Bible Society. And uh, when he was through, I said, come on, I'll take you back. And we went to the car, and there was a priest standing on the corner. And I said, uh, say, would you like a ride? Are you going east? He said, oh, how kind of you. I said, no, nothing kind about it. I just want to see how a Jew, a Catholic, and a Protestant could get along together. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he said, that's wonderful. And he got into the car. He said, what's that name? on your building, something like Bureau, but it isn't Bureau. I said, uh, oh, haven't you read in the Bible about the Bereans? No, I don't believe I have. I said, well, the Bereans were 
people in the town of Berea. They were Jews. And Paul went to preach to them. And it says there in the history in Acts uh, 11 that the Bereans were more noble than those, or 1711 I should say, the Bereans were more noble than those of another city because they listened to Paul with an open mind and then they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. He said, oh, what a beautiful story. I said, will you be sure to look it up when you get home? And I told him, and then I said, with that in view, oh, I do hope you'll pay a lot of attention to the epistles of Paul. And we talked a little about Peter and Paul. Then he said to me, what do you think is the most important thing in any church? I said, I don't think I have to think long to answer that one. The most important thing is what is preached from behind that pulpit. Oh, he said, I don't know. I think a bell. What is a church without a bell? <laughs> That's true. I, I'm telling you exactly as it is. He said, what is a church without a bell? But I got thinking later. Uh, looking at it, oh, uh, what's the word I want to use again, representatively or figuratively? A lot of churches have the bell. <laughs> a lot of the big evangelistic campaigns, they got the ways to get them, you know. But when they come, how little they give them. I thank God that when I was saved, I was saved under a ministry of teaching. Men of God like Gabon and Ironside and all these great men, they taught the word of God, but they were evangelists too. And Dad, near the end of his line, said to me one time, Neil, we've had a lot of different ministries here at the Star of Hope Mission. Which one would you say has been spiritually the most fruitful? That seemed easy to answer. We had a mother's class where we gave the mother the clothing. We helped them make clothing for their own families. Not really a lot of fruit in that class. We had a clothes dispensary where we give, gave clothes away to poor people and had meetings with them. Not too much. We had meetings in the jail and in the poor house and in the different hospitals. We had open air meetings. That came a close second. But you know what was by far the most spiritually fruitful? Those meetings where the word of God was taught and these men were overflowing with the grace of God and people got saved in great numbers. Thank God Paul himself was a great example here, beloved. He certainly did the work of an evangelist. Besides being a teacher of the word, and a, a pastor who loved his congregation and fed them uh, sumptuously with spiritual food, he also loved the lost. He loved the lost deeply and showed it again and again. They were on his heart and how he brought the wonderful message of grace to them. And when he was in a position where he knew this suffering was going to be the greatest ever, he said, but none of these things move me. What do you mean to weep and to break my heart? He said, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the good, the good news of the grace of God. Could anything be clearer that with all the deep, wonderful truths that he preaches, 
He was at heart an evangelist, and those deep truths were part of his message. Not only, how did that start in 1 Corinthians 15? Brother uh, Floyd was exactly right. Uh, Christ died for our sins. This is the gospel by which ye are saved. But it goes on. The burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and a good many things in between. The resurrection of the saved and the coming again of Christ. That was all the good news that he had been preaching to them. But it had to start with a basic thing. Christ died for your sins. I got a letter, oh, very briefly ago, saying, Mr. Stam, I don't believe you are preaching the gospel, and I don't think you should have that sign on the side of your building. Christ died for our sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Well, that's true. And he's coming again, and he's taken us to heaven already, given us a place there, blessed us with all spiritual, that's the gospel too. Ah, but the first thing, the thing on which it is all based and founded is Christ died for our sins. And it wasn't hard to answer that letter. It was very kindly written. Uh, the person meant no offense. But what does Paul call his message? The preaching of the cross, you see. The preaching of the cross. So there is the basis. And oh, my dear unsaved friend here this afternoon, that's where you have to start. You have to understand, you have to see, you have to acknowledge your, your desperate situation, your desperate condition, and see that God in love now doesn't say, I'm going to punish you for that. He does say it. He said that back there. God's answer prophetically, in the prophetic program, God's answer to the cross will be his judgment on Israel and the nations. But, oh, that's not what he's doing now. Now he's proclaiming the cross, and he says we're reconciled to God by the cross, by having slain the enmity thereby. That, to me, is a beautiful, beautiful verse. He slain the enmity by it. So, beloved, even if you're not a pastor, 